Okay, let's get started with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do come before you and bow low in our hearts that we might give you the praise that is due to your name. Lord, as we study about that this morning, may it be magnified in our heart that we might, in the coming days, give you greater and greater worship as we understand more about who you are and what you're about, what your grand plan involves. Lord, may it stimulate us to willingly give you worship in our lives each and every day. May you be glorified by what we teach and understand this morning. May it bring praise to Jesus Christ as it clearly teaches where, where and what and when he will do these things. Blessed be your name, Lord, in Christ's name, amen. This is week number 19 in our study of eschatology, and last week uh, we began chapter 36, and 36 is in great contrast to 35. 35 was all about the desolation of Mount Seir in the region called Edom in the Millennial Kingdom, and chapter 36 is all about the blessings of the mountain of Israel. And you remember, we, we looked at this, that God in this chapter literally speaks to the land. He spends the first 20 verses or so talking to the land, saying that um, he calls it my land, and that he's, he's jealous for it because other people say that it's their land, and he says, no, it's my land. And then he's going to bless this land in such a way that the uh, branches will put forth leaves and fruit, that the ground will be um, uh, tilled and planted, sown, and it will reap a great harvest. Um, He talks literally to the mountains and the hills and the valleys and the ravines. So God's speaking to the land um, that he will bless not only the people who are going to inhabit the land, but also the very land itself. And so um, God calls this land, you know, and and this is something significant to realize about chapter 36, because it's different than a few of the other chapters. In chapter 37, God will show Ezekiel a vision, and then the vision will be explained. Well, in chapter 36, there is no vision. And you'll see it multiple times through this chapter. It says, thus says the Lord. And so this is literally God speaking to to Ezekiel, telling him what to tell the people. No visions involved, no metaphors involved, no imagery involved. Just this is what I am going to do. And so it's important to realize that because as God, um, this is not initiated by Ezekiel. This is initiated by God. So when God brings up the land, then it must be significant to him. Otherwise, he wouldn't mention the land. And he's talking here specifically about the land of Israel. And you think about that, and what would that have meant to Ezekiel and the people who Ezekiel was speaking these words to? Every one of them would remember the land that they just got banished from. That's the land that they would have assumed that God is talking about. 
And you know, this is, it's also important to realize this is 1,500 years after God called Abraham and said, I'm going to take you to another land. And then Abraham actually uh, trod on the land and God said, everywhere where your feet have tread, this is the land that I'm going to give to your descendants and you'll be a great nation and all of that. This is 1,500 years later. So it's not like it's just been a couple of years or whatever. It's, it's been 1,500 years. And we think, oh, well, we're 2,000 years removed from Jesus Christ. Um, it seems like God is delaying. Well, this is 1,500 years after he first called Abraham, and God is still bringing the land up. So it must be significant to him. Um, because this is God speaking, not Ezekiel. And God even calls this, we looked at it last week, he says, this is the land that I gave to your forefathers. And that, of course, would be the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, So God has been working this plan, and it has not escaped his notice that they just got banished out of Israel. The land is desolate. God starts this chapter with the current condition of the land at the time when Ezekiel is speaking, and that is that it is a desolation. And he says it's for good reason that it's a desolation, because of your iniquity and because of your abominations and your uncleanness. And so that's where God starts, and he, he says he's going to bless this land. He doesn't give us a time frame reference anywhere in this chapter. We just know that it goes with chapter 34, which is when his servant David is established in his throne. That is the millennial kingdom, when Jesus Christ reigns. And so God, for those first 20-something verses, talks to the land, and then he transitions and begins to speak about the people of the land. And if you remember down in um, like verses 15 through 20, he recounts why he has caused them to be scattered. And, you know, surely the hands of the Babylonians are the ones who took them into captivity and slaughtered all the people who remained in Israel. But God says, I scattered them. So this judgment from from the Babylonians, from Nebuchadnezzar, if you look at it properly from the lens of Scripture, it is Nebuchadnezzar actually killing people and scattering them, but it's God who is in control and has caused this to happen. And so this desolation has been wrought on his own land by God because of the iniquity of the people. So as we get to verse, we looked at these two verses last week, but it's worth looking at them again. Because what I said last week is this chapter gives us not only what God is going to do, it clearly does that, but it gives us his motive for doing so. And that's rare in scripture, that we have what is the motive of God. Think about it, when he called Abraham, You read it all through Genesis. He doesn't say why. Nowhere does he tell Abraham why I'm doing this or for this purpose, never. When he tells David that he's going to establish his house forever and his throne will be an everlasting throne, he doesn't tell him why. 
never mentions why he's going to do that. But here in Ezekiel, God says why he's going to do it. It's very rare in scripture when we get what the motive of God is, especially as explicitly as it's given here in this chapter. So it's important to recognize it. So in verses 21 and 22, God said, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel has profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. Now you, you think about this and you say, how did Israel profane the name of God. They certainly didn't go out speaking profanities about God. That's not what this is about. All the lands around Israel understood that Israel claimed to be in the land because their God was the Lord God Almighty. Everybody recognized that. As a matter of fact, they hated them because of it. And so when the people of Israel are driven out of their land, and, and from the world's perspective, it looked like Nebuchadnezzar could do anything he wanted to with them. Now Nebuchadnezzar could, but only because God gave him the authority to do so. But the people of the world don't recognize that. So as the Israelites are driven out of their land, and for centuries since then, then people would say, your God is not real. Your God is not who you claim he is. Your God cannot keep you in the land. And that is profaning the name of God by saying he's not able and he is not a special God who's above all other gods. He's just like any other God and the gods of Nebuchadnezzar could take him down. That's what the world would say. And that's what the Israelites, to, to a large degree, have believed since that time and, and do today. I mean, there are some people in Israel who are still looking for a Messiah and still expectant. And there's some Jews throughout the world who are that way, but it's a small, small slither of them. And only those who are Orthodox are still doing that, and that's less than 15% of the Jewish people on the planet today and the rest have given up on the thought of a messiah and given up on the thought of a special land and given up on a thought of being the people of God that that is not in their in their doctrine and so they still today profane the name of God in that way now in verse 23 this is significant enough to God that he repeats it and says it again he says in verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Okay, so God says, I'm not going to do what is listed next, these actions, because it's for your good. That is not God's motive at all. Never has been. God is going to bless the land 
and the people of Israel to prove to all those who see it that he is the Lord God Almighty and that his name might not be profaned. That's his motive. God never has been about blessing the Israelites because they were special. Never has been. Even from the very beginning, that was not his motive. This has always been the motive of God. And if you, if you read the law carefully, you'll see it, that God desired to show all the other nations through Israel who he was, that he was the Lord God Almighty. But instead, because of the obstinance and the disobedience of the Israelites, his name winds up being profaned. So in order to reverse that profanity of his name, God himself has to take action. No one else is able to prove that God is who he said he is. But he's going to. And that's his motive, not only in this, but in the whole creation itself. This has always been the motive of God, is to get praise and glory to his name, to who he is. That's always been God's motive. And, and we see it clearly here that he says, it's not for your sake, house of Israel. Look at the, a little bit later, didn't intend to do this, but over in verse, I think it's 30. I'll find it. Verse 32. I am not doing this. This is at the end of what he says he's going to do. I am not doing this for your sakes, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So clearly, God says it three times. I am not doing this for the sake of the people of Israel. So we ought to understand that right? That this is not about the people of Israel. Just like New Testament salvation is not about those who get saved. It's about the glory and the kindness and the grace of God. Now, clearly the people who are saved, it benefits them. Clearly here, this benefits the people of Israel. But that's a byproduct. The real reason is for the glory of God's name and that he might be shown to be kind and gracious and loving. And so we, we ought to think rightly about this. This is what scripture teaches. This is what God's motives are. And, and we can consider ourselves more highly than we ought to. Now we are greatly blessed if you place faith in Jesus Christ, but it's not because you're something special. It's because God has brought glory to his own name. And that's the way we ought to think about this. Now, I want to walk through the actions that God takes. And these are astounding. There's no place that I know of in all of Scripture where the glory and the majesty of God's blessings on Israel are described in such detail as these next six verses. Nowhere in all of scripture is it as grandeur as it is here. This is very different from anything else that's been said about the nation of Israel. 
So you look in verse 24. We just walk through these. You could almost say step one, step two, step three, step four. This is what God says he's going to do so that his name will not be profaned. So in 24, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Now, what would Ezekiel thought that God meant by his own land? What would, it, what would the people of Israel have thought that he meant by your own land? Remember, when they were in Israel, long time before this, but certainly they still had the history, the land was divided among the tribes. They were given the borders of their land. Remember way back in Joshua, when even though they didn't possess it, even though they didn't drive all the people out of it, still the boundaries were marked out for each of the tribes. So they knew what was meant by their own land. And notice that God says, I will vindicate the holiness of my name. Now, I don't use that word very often, and I'm going to vindicate something, right? So what does vindicate mean? And it means to justify or to defend or to support his name. So God says, I'm going to defend my name. I'm going to cause it to be seen justly before all the nations of the earth because I'm going to bring Israel back to their own land. Now, we've already seen some of this back in chapter 34 where it says that God himself will be their shepherd and he'll gather them to himself and he'll seek out the lost. He'll bind up the lame. Remember that? He'll heal those who are sick. He'll strengthen the weak. And then he'll judge one sheep among another, meaning that he'll pull out the true believers and cast out those who are not. He'll cast out the leadership and God himself will be their shepherd. And that's the same chapter that says he'll establish his servant David, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne. And so we've already seen this to some degree where God said, I'm going to bring the people back. But that's the first step. He goes much further than that because you see in verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Now, it is a very significant thing when God says, you will be clean. I mean, that's, cleanse, that's cleansing by God in front of God. He says, I will consider you to be clean. That's a very significant thing. I mean, it's significant clearly for us, right? When, when you think of how have we today been cleansed, you say, well, I've been cleansed of my sins. God's forgiven my sins, right? Well, that's the same thing he's telling them. Because look at what he says. I'll cleanse you from your idols and from your filthiness. When I, filthiness, clearly in Scripture, indicates sinfulness. So here God says, I'm going to gather the nation of Israel, and then I'm going to go further. I'm going to sprinkle you with water. 
that you might be cleansed of your sins. Now, let's look at a couple of parallels over in the New Testament. You can look at um, Titus chapter 3. And this is what I want to do. I want to show you that what is in Ezekiel 36 is equivalent to what is in the New Testament about salvation for true believers. Look in Titus 3, verses 5 through 7. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we'd be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have been cleansed by the washing of regeneration, by the washing by the Holy Spirit, in the same way that God will cleanse the people of Israel. Now look over in um, Ephesians 5.26. We could go to many, many places that say these exact same thing. 5.26, talking about the church, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having not spot or wrinkle. That's what he's saying about the Israelites, that he's going to wash them that they might be cleansed of their filthiness. They might be cleansed of their idolatry. He's going to give them the same thing he gives to the New Testament believers. David understood this. Look over in Psalm 51. And this is the time of David's repentance after he had sinned with Bathsheba. And he, he is penitent here. And you look down in Psalm 51, verse 7. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Then verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now that's where God's going to go next. But right here, what he's saying is, I will cleanse you of your sin. I'll wash you so you will be sinless. Now that doesn't mean that they will never sin again, okay? These are Israelites. These are people who've lived through the tribulation period into the millennial kingdom. And so these people are still trapped in their humanness. These people are not in glorified bodies. They've not been taken up with Jesus Christ. He's certainly there in their midst, but they are not in glorified body. They're still trapped in their humanness. And so they will still sin. But that doesn't mean, just like you and I will still sin after our salvation, that God still cleanses us of those sins. And that's what he's saying here in chapter 36 in verse 25, I will sprinkle them with clean water. And so this is like New Testament salvation. 
And then what David just said, a new spirit, a new heart, look at what he says in verse 26. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So God's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. Now this spirit here is the spirit of man, not the spirit of God. Okay, and God does the same thing for us. You think of it this way, the heart is the seat of the soul, right? And the soul is the will and the emotions and the, um, the desires of a person. And so I believe in scripture that spirit and soul are not two separate things. They're synonymous. They're just different ways to say the same thing. So there are a lot of people who teach differently than that, that believe that the spirit and the soul are two separate things. But I, as I read scripture, just as David said, create in me a new heart and, and renew my spirit, the heart being the seat of the soul. It's, it's just, he's saying the same thing in different ways. And I think if you'll study in the New Testament, the, so many times, spirit and soul used in the same verse to simply say the same thing. Now, you could disagree with that, and I'm okay with that, but I believe the spirit and the soul are the same thing. So when God says he's going to create a new spirit within you, it means he's going to renew your desires, what you want to do. And we know that's true of a new believer, right? There's a couple of verses that unlike more than others that say this. Look over in um, Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, 4. This is one of my favorite verses that says, when, you, when a person gets saved, then God intends for them to live differently. Because there are some Christians who say, no, no, if I sin, then that just magnifies the glory of God. Not so. Not so, it proves you're not a true believer if you continue to do that. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, here it is, so we too might walk in newness of life. There's a difference when a person has been saved, that in the way that they walk, in what they desire to do, in what they want to do. Look over at Second um, Corinthians 5, and you know this verse. You know this verse well. Second Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So when, when a person is saved in the New Testament, their spirit is renewed. They're giving their heart, the scripture would say, is circumcised, meaning you take out that which desires to do what it wants to do, and it's replaced with what God desires for a person to do. And so their very heart motives are changed in a New Testament believer. That's what he's saying about these Israelites. 
that God will give them a new spirit and a new heart. He'll literally change what they desire to do, just as he does in a New Testament believer. Now, we often don't believe that well enough because if we did, we wouldn't do some of the things that we do. But it doesn't mean it's any less true. Now, the same thing will be true about the Israelites. They will not live perfectly. But their desires and their heart will be wanting to live perfectly, just as we as New Testament believers want to always do what is pleasing to God. Doesn't mean we do, but we want to. That's what he's saying about these people, that he'll wash them clean, he'll forgive them of their sins, and he'll put within them, he'll change their heart and their spirit. That's New Testament salvation. He does the same thing for us. And at this time, God is going to do that. In this day that he's talking about, he will do this for the Israelites. This is why he gathers them back together. This is why he brings them together as a nation so that he can do these acts so that his name will not be profaned any longer. Keep going. He goes further. Verse 27 He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the Holy Spirit indwelling the Israelites, just as the Holy Spirit indwells a New Testament believer. So everything that we see in New Testament salvation God describes here that he's going to do for the Israelites. Why? Because this will enable them to live according to his ordinances, that they might be differentiated from the people of the earth, that people might recognize that and give God glory and quit profaning his name. That's what God is all about here. Why does he save us? For our good? Because we're special? Not at all. So that we might be the light of the world. We might be the salt of the earth, as John David taught. That we might show the glory of God, might show him to be who he is. He does the same thing for the Israelites here, except for this time, he does it in a way that the whole world will see a group of people, a huge group of people, changed in a moment so that they might recognize who God is. So this is the Holy Spirit. Now, the indwelling Holy Spirit can be seen many places in the New Testament, but turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Ephesians 1, 13. In 14, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Same reason that he does it for the Israelites. Exact same reason that people might recognize that this person 
these Israelites have been changed and that they're God's own people to the praise of God's glory, that his name might not be profaned any longer, that the world might see it. Now, like I said, the, the Israelites are still trapped in their humanness, just as we are today. We, we don't, at salvation, we don't escape our humanness. That comes later, right? The Israelites will be the same way. They're, they're just like you and I. God will do for them in this day exactly what he's done for you and I already when we place faith in Jesus Christ. God will do the exact same thing for the Israelites. And see, we always think about the Israelites differently, do we not? That they'll get saved in a different way. That their salvation comes in a different way. Not true. Not true. That's why God lays this out explicitly. And I mean, where else? <laughs> you know, if you want to teach New Testament salvation, go to Ezekiel 36. Because it's explained so well there. Just step after step after step of what God has done in the life of a new believer. Now, you notice he says in this verse 27 that I'll put my spirit in you that you might be careful to observe my ordinances. The same thing is true for you and I. The reason we have the indwelling spirit is, I, I see it mainly as twofold. One is so that you can understand scripture because the spirit illumines your mind and shows you the truth of scripture. But two, so that you might have the power to overcome sin in your life because the Holy Spirit is there constantly sh showing you what is sinful and how to overcome it. And that's why God has given him to us. So every time I, I sin, I basically deny that I have the Spirit living within me. That's a hard thing to think about. But it's true. I simply deny that God has put his power within me to overcome my sinfulness. Now, we're still trapped in our sinfulness. We're still tempted. We're not perfect. But I could be a whole lot closer to perfect than I am. There's no doubt about that. Okay, so, David, yeah. I've got the ESV here. ESV. And if you yeah, and it uses the word because. I mean, those, you know, in the Hebrew, that's a word that can be translated multiple ways. For, because, so. I mean, a bunch of different ways, but they're all saying the same thing. But because is a good translation. Now, I'm going to say something about the NIV because some of you have never heard me say it before. The NIV is what is known as a dynamic equivalent. And this is what it means. And this used to be on Zondervan's website, but they've removed it. What they used to say is that where possible, this is word for word from the Hebrew. Where not possible is thought for thought. And I go, whose thoughts? What you think it means? Yes, 
Exactly. That's a dynamic equivalent. We can't translate it word for word, so we're going to tell you what it means in a different way. Not good. No, no, I'm not fussing at you. I'm just telling, I want you to understand about the NIV. It, in many places, it's good, but in many places, it's not. Yeah, I use the NASB. Right. NASB, ESV, New King James. That's where you ought to be because those are word for word. If you want to read the NIV as a supplement, okay, but recognize, and they've removed this from their website for a good reason. It's no longer there, but it used to be there because I went there and that's what it said, but they've removed it. So thought for thought, that worries me a whole lot. It does, it does. There are many other translations. Of the dynamic equivalents, the NIV is the best. No doubt about that. But it, once you go down that path, you're, you're on shaky ground. So be careful. New King James, ESV, NASB. All are word for word. If you ever want to study about that, there's a book by a guy named Riken called The Word of God in English. Now, Riken is biased because he was on the ESV translation committee. So he thinks ESV is the best. That's okay. He'll explain to you what a dynamic equivalent is and show you passages where it doesn't even come close to being a good translation. So the Word of God in English by Jeremy, I believe, Riken. Good book. Short book, but a good read. All right, I need to finish. No, that's okay. I don't mind you interrupting me. All right, in verse 26, I just want to say this, and then we'll come back to it next week. This New Testament salvation, right? God's going to do it to vindicate his name. It's clear what God is doing for the Israelite people here. Then I want you to look at verse 26. Sorry, verse 28. You will live, this is part of it, you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. Now, why did he add that? We've got New Testament salvation, and nowhere in New Testament salvation does God say to us, you're going to live in a special place, right? Never. But here to the Israelites, Almighty God speaking of their salvation, says, and you will live in the land of your forefathers. Why? Because his name would not be vindicated if they don't. Because he made a promise. And here, he keeps his promise. Otherwise, the people of of the nations could still say, yeah, but he wasn't able to keep you in your land. So he adds the land. Because that's part of the promise to the nation of Israel, not to all true believers. There's a reason for that to be there. And this is Almighty God speaking to Ezekiel. This is not Ezekiel speaking, this is God speaking. So, it's significant. And this is, you know, we've talked about the land, the land, the land. Why did you start talking about the land? Because of statements like this. 
You need to recognize what it says. Now, I'll show you, not this week, but in maybe next week, all the different places in Ezekiel where God does this, this, just this, that the land is significant to him. And you can't have chapter 48 of Ezekiel. You might as well tear it out of your Bible if they don't live in their land. Because chapter 48 is about the division of the land among the 12 tribes. And a portion for the Levites and a portion for the prince who is a special person that we'll talk about and a portion for the Lord. All those portions are shown in chapter 48. So you might as well rip it out if you don't believe that because this is the division of the land in the millennial kingdom. So very significant for us to recognize that. Thanks for your time this morning.